see the Australians looking relaxed, looking long and loose. This is the awesome foursome as we know them. There's nothing in it. It's Australia, Italy, Romania, France. We said at the start of this race it was going to be the closest. You can throw a blanket over the field. The medals are up for grabs. Less than 500 to go in the straight fours in Atlanta. Right. Oh, the Australians have gone to a lead of about a canvas now over Romania and Great uh, Britain coming up into third place. Can the Australians make it back to back of a big goal? They've increased Move their away. lead. They've moved away Big now from the Romanians. This is a fantastic effort by the awesome foursome. A little look there from uh, Drew Ginn. He's just saying, righto, boys, now it's time. Two fifty to go, he said. Two fifty to go. They've got to go. Two hundred and fifty minutes left in it. Raise the rate. Look at this. Oh, this is fantastic from the Australians. They've kicked away. They've got gas in the tank. They're three parts of the boat. The Romanians in France and Great Britain. The Australians look like going for back-to-back goal. I think they've got enough depth. left in them they said they had confidence in themselves and they were right after racing internationally for a number of years and competing at the rio olympics we realized that each athlete has an epic story and a journey behind every performance and there's so much more to the olympics than just that final race we know the passion we have for sport is shared by thousands of others around the world and we want to bring these stories to you on the row show we have a look behind the scenes to understand the journey each athlete has taken to get to the olympics we get into the years of work and dedication and the hardships an athlete has to endure to have a chance of standing on the greatest sporting stage in the world and a chance for glory. Welcome to The Rose Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast where we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance and we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive for. Such a role as high fit. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> hey guys, Lawrence and Jake here. Um, just some housekeeping before we get going. Sorry for not putting an episode out last week. We had some technical issues, but we promise that this week we'll make up for it. Once again, please share our show. At the moment, we're not making any money from the show, and we're just doing it for all our epic listeners. So to help us grow the Rose Show, just make it your mission to get one more person listening to the show each week. It's really going to make a huge difference. You can also get hold of us on Instagram or email us at theroeshowsa at gmail.com if you have any queries or ideas on the show. Just a quick shout out to Just Rowing. Um, they are Instagram's most successful rowing page, and they're bringing really epic content to the rowing community from all over the world. Keep a lookout for some epic stuff coming from there in the future. That's just rowing on Instagram. And we also have another shout out to the games.co.za. They are a website that is home to all the Olympic sports, offering news, updates, and everything you need to know about your favorite South African athletes and sporting codes. It is their mission to provide broad coverage of all codes, including rowing, and establish a platform that truly belongs to the various sporting communities across the country. We are doing some awesome work with them, so go check that out. That is thegames.co.za. Nice, dude. 
Cool. Now the housekeeping is out the way, we can uh, get into to some real stuff here. Yeah, hey, Lawrence. Um, so, will it make the boat go faster? <laughs> will it make the boat go faster? Today's guest is one of Australia's rowing all-stars, Drew Ginn. As we have found out, rowers really love talking about rowing. And when you get someone like Drew on, there's a lot to cover. And we have some really epic stuff coming in this episode so we're going to release the podcast in two parts to give you guys the best experience i think it's necessary that we give you guys a bit of an introduction to drew and how he is such a beast in the rowing world so drew competed internationally for 19 years from 1994 to 2012 1994 was the year i was born anyway and he is one of the legends in sweep rowing he raced his first olympics with the legendary awesome foursome in 1996, winning his first Olympic gold. The awesome foursome is Australia's name for their Coxes 4 that has some epic results since 1992. Just eight weeks before the next Olympics in 2000, which were his home Olympics in Sydney, Australia, Drew ruptured a disc in his back and had to undergo a massive operation which left him unable to race at his home Olympics. He was not finished yet, however, and he returned stronger than ever to race in the pair with fellow 96 crewmate and rowing sweep legend James Tompkins in the men's pair where they posted some epic results and ended their run with a spectacular gold at the Athens Olympic Games in 2004. The next Olympic cycle, James Tompkins retired and Drew began rowing with Duncan Free and together they continued Australia's impressive results in the pair. In 2008, at the Beijing Olympics, Drew ruptured his second disc in his back during the heats of the regatta and through sheer willpower and determination, he held his shit together to win a third Olympic gold. Another back operation and months of rehab and recovery, Drew was back in the boat and this time had his sights set on the 2012 London Olympics. Back in the Aussie awesome foursome and with some new crewmates such as Ergo world record holder Josh Dunkley-Smith, they raced to a silver medal in an epic battle against the British Four. I hope you are now thoroughly excited and we suggest right now that you pause this and go watch some of the epic races of Drew's career. All the links are in our show notes below. In this episode, we cover Drew's mental prep and routine for an Olympic A final. How Drew managed to make the awesome foursome back in 1995. And being a young buck in the crew, we're going to talk a lot about how you can seize your opportunities, really learn from older athletes. We also talk about dealing with major injuries and setbacks and how to open your mind and think outside of the boat. And so, so much more. I hope you enjoy this roller coaster ride and part one of the Drew Ginn episode. Hello. Hey, hey, Drew. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Yourself? Good, good. Uh, it's Lawrence. And how's it going, uh, Drew? It's Jake. Yeah, good. Very well. Well, how thanks. Are you guys? Yeah, very good. And you? Just coming back from uh, a morning session, and you finished for the day nearly. Finished for the day, but we've had storms here for the last uh, 24 hours, so we've had uh, a blackout in Hobart up until about uh, two and a half hours ago. Oh, my word. oh, that's yeah. a relief. No, no power is such a such a problem. We have power problems here oh, sometimes. Oh yeah, you learn that you rely on it, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks for thanks so much for coming on our show and uh, giving us some of your time. Pleasure. So Drew, just the first question to start things off. Um, what were your 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 most favorite and your least favorite sessions of training? Uh, most favorite, um, probably. Uh, is it the favorite part of the session or favorite sessions? Uh, either, whichever uh, whichever jumps uh, to your mind. 
because the favourite parts are the last couple of minutes when it's all done, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, I think the uh, yeah to be serious, I think the the sessions that I used to really enjoy, um, particularly towards the back end of my career, were just long paddles. Um, you know, times in Varese in Italy, a training centre at Northern Italy, in in there for times between World Cups and stuff, and uh, the lake's quite long, and so you can sort of settle into a 20, 25k row, and the whole intent was to push the paddling speed and. Um, really enjoy the feel of the boat and the rhythm of the boat and the rhythm of the combination. And um, I think when you when you feel like you're really fit and you're right prior to a major event and the boat's going really well, um, you know, they're sort of almost like meditative states. And uh, the contrast to that is early in the season when you're not fit and you've got sort of high high hopes or expectations and probably when the coach pulls out the first sort of racing session workloads that we would sort of do around November or December and uh, getting ready for a a first lot of national trials and, and uh, you know, you're not quite physically in the right sort of head, headspace, um, technically, physically and, and also mentally um, and they hurt like hell sort of thing. So, uh, you know, early season racing work hard and uh, and paddling sessions towards the end of the season really enjoyable. I really like how you, you jump to, to what you like the most first and not uh, not remember the, the bad sessions uh, uh, straight up. <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, the, the, longer, the longer I'm now sort of away from the sport, competing and training on a daily basis, the, uh, the only things you remember are the good times, aren't they? Yeah, no, that is uh, for sure. Thinking back, uh, what does performance mean to you? Um, I think performance from, I suppose, my perspective over you know, all those years is all about having massive amounts of pressure on, either pressure you put on yourself or pressure you put on... Um, your team or the event pressures going to the biggest events you can go to and uh, and then being able to actually produce a produce a, an outstanding result um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that you can be really proud of so probably give you a bit of an example I think um, I had an experience sort of oh, and this is going to be a long back way now in 1996 yet bladder Olympic Games with the Australia's awesome foursome and um, Massive amount of pressure because I was trying to go back to back Olympic Games gold. You had the Italian crews that had already been um, two years um, world champions leading in. Um, the Brits were fantastic. The French were great. Um, you know, and so I was a part of a crew that was trying to you know, get there and achieve again when the whole standard and the competition had changed. So, massive amount of pressure. And then being able to actually deliver um, a rowing performance and, and, and a movement and, and, and your race plan. Under those circumstances, is um, is for me that's 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 just the ultimate sort of thing. So you sort of think about you know performance isn't just being able to do the rowing stroke well um, when when no one's around or when you're just out there with your coach. It's actually being able to do it under immense amounts of pressure when everything's on the line. I think one of the one of the one skill that you learn quickly when you get to international blocks is how to handle your mental space when it comes to the start line. Um, can you can you chat to us a bit about um, did you have any techniques or kind of routines that you went through before a race to try to get your men- mind in the right kind of game? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and if, let's let's um, I'll put it in context for you. So I reckon the Olympic Games probably more so than the Worlds, but the Olympic Games and the World Championships. It's more about what you do in between races. Um, you know, obviously everyone looks at the race and, and what you do when you're racing as. Now, that's the action, and, and I get that it's what gets you the result, but I've, I've seen and I've felt myself that it's what you do between the moments, between the strokes and, and between the races, and 
um, over the week and all that sort of stuff. So how you handle yourself is really critical. So I, I've often called the Olympic Games it's almost like the waiting games. Um, everything's been done physically, technically. You, you can't. You're not going to make massive changes, and you're not going to make massive gains. But you can certainly pull it all apart by what goes on between the years. So my routines, largely um, developed over many many years, were just about appreciating my own personality type and appreciating the, my teammates' um, personalities and where we where we got energy from and, and, and the things that would frustrate us or, or annoy us and um, and then working with that to say, well, I personally needed to go for a walk every day um, and I enjoyed having sort of one-on-one conversations with my teammate and my coach and um, I liked getting away from some of the larger activities that might be um, involved when you're in a team of 70 athletes and you've got luncheons and breakfasts and all that sort of stuff on. So for me personally, it was you know the old walk and talk. You know, get out with your crewmate and you know stroll around for half an hour, and um, you know, and don't just talk about rowing, but also talk about you know life and things you enjoy. And so always for me, the ability to sort of just um, take the pressure off in that regard, um, enjoy being out, being being active. Um, I often found on race days, you know, the simple thing of you know an hour and ten out from the race, you wanted to beat the course. And for me to then have the recipe and the routine from that hour and 10 to when you actually you know, um, pulled that first stroke in anger um, in the actual race um, was almost scripted. And, and knowing full well, um, for me, what I needed was you know, just quiet downtime. I didn't like a lot of routine in terms of warm-ups and all that sort of stuff. But I think everyone's different. So I've been with crewmates who have liked to do elaborate ergos and, and, and all sorts of stuff like runs and all that sort of thing. But for me personally, knowing myself, I used to like to just be pretty chilled out and taking it pretty easy um the ad, the added part to that was for me the mental rehearsal of seeing yourself doing your rowing strokes and seeing yourself do your race plans and then seeing yourself sort of have that kind of experience you want to have and i'm a big believer in that sort of visualization um and probably the the, the key there is they're not overdoing it so i used to always find that you know the night before i go over the race a couple of times in my head um we'd often have a crew meeting or a crew chat and walk through it as well as a race plan so I'd go through it about three times that night. Um, the next morning, I'd find myself out having a walk either with my crewmate or alone. Um, and again, you'd talk through the race plan and, and just make sure it was really clear as to what you wanted to feel, what you wanted to see, how you thought it was going to compare to your competitors. Um, but then once I've done those routines, me, it did all go. And, uh, and trusting that it's, it's there, all the work's been done. And I suppose the last couple of minutes sitting on the start line, I used to find really interesting as to um, appreciating and enjoying what you can do in the, I call, call, you call it the here and now as everyone talks about it. And if you're sitting on the start line, the only thing you can do is sit on the start line. So I think the ability to, you're anxious anyway, but the ability to handle those anxieties and um, I suppose those fears and the mind sort of spinning is to sort of just realise that all you can do is breathe well, sit there well, um, enjoy the sights and sounds around you and, and not get too caught up in the energy of it all, the hype. Um, but to just trust that that race plan, that, that, that rowing stroke that you've been trying to perfect for so many years, that'll come through when the time requires it sort of thing. So for me, that used to be the, the day before and, and during the, the lead up to the race. And, uh, and I used to try to just keep to that sort of routine and just enjoy the moment as much as possible if you can. Yeah, and I think uh, especially at the Olympics where there's just so much hype and there's, like, there's just tons of, of extra things added to the, the whole event that you, you can get lost in that quite easily. And then especially that the last hour or, or hour, two hours before your race, that routine is so crucial because, you know, that's where that's where the pressure is probably the highest and sitting on that start line. I'm getting nervous just uh, just sitting yes, there. <laughs> the feeling the feeling of when you push off the jetty and knowing that sh- that you you only got yourself now 
It's like, I, I find like in other team sports, like maybe rugby or soccer, you have, you can listen to music, you have this team aspect of building up gears and stuff before you get on the water. But when in the rowing, when you push off that jetty, you really do feel a, a, the real visceral sense of the nerves and the anxiety. So I think it's a really important aspect that rowers get right. But that's also where the, the, the like the routine that you've done now yeah. through the season really comes in and, and plays a big, uh, a big role. But Drew, um, what what is your favorite race of your career? So if you, I mean, you've done some serious, yeah, amazing races one. that we're going to get to. But which one stands out for you as like your, your favorite? That's that's not fair. It's like <laughs> my two kids at the kitchen table just next to me, and it's like looking at either of them and going, "Who's my favorite child?" Uh, <laughs> uh, let me think. Uh, oh, it's it's a difficult one because I think your first games or or your first experience of anything really, when you really feel like you've um. It's meant a lot to you. Uh, it's pretty special. So I do draw upon that as an experience with the awesome force and, uh, in 1996. And, and I suppose there's a lot about that. But um, you know, you're a first-time Olympian. You're 20, 21 years of age sitting in the back of a boat with guys that you've looked up to for many years, guys who have been there and done that. So there was a, there was a sense there for me that I was sort of almost like the lucky kid, I felt, and um, sort of pinching myself. So... So that sort of experience really embeds in, in your memory banks, and um, and so I'll, I won't ever look past that too far. But it, yeah, it's really hard to differentiate. And probably, I mean, there's there's an there's a memory that I've got about each one that's so uniquely different. And uh, and even though it's a two thousand meter rowing race, it's an Olympic Games. It's so vastly different what happens in the boat when you're with their your teammates. And I, and I remember Duncan Free in particular in uh, two thousand eight, where you know I'd, I'd ruptured the disc in my back in the heat row, so to get through that week of competition, even though it wasn't a great physical feeling and experience of you know, feeling great when you're rowing, it was actually pretty horrible. Um, but the memory of getting through that was amazing. So yeah, so 96 is very special, but each one is is, is amazing as uh, as you, know, you can imagine. Yeah, I know. I think it's it's basically must be impossible to to choose between, especially the the golds that you that you have there. Okay, so we're jumping around a little bit, but let's um, we, let's start uh, back with uh, Atlanta. We're going to come to to 2008 just now. When I looked on uh, on your results, then there's there's not a lot before um, the Atlanta Olympics. Like you raced a few times in eight overseas, and then suddenly you find yourself in the in the in the in the awesome foursome. Uh, how did that transition all happen? Uh, I I was probably uh, I, I describe it as being lucky. I was at the right space place at the right time um and there's no doubt you've got to have i suppose the ability um or you've got to have the, the temperament and determination to to do it all i finished school in 92 and to, to to make sense of this is that james tompkins who was in the awesome force in 92 and then in 96 and i rode again in the pair later on um he was co-coaching at my uh, at my school with a guy called Laurie Malcolm, and so in '92 I got to watch them win the Olympic Games in Barcelona, and uh, and only months before that, you know, we were in a school crew, and and there you did, yeah you had you know, big Jimmy um, sitting in the speedboat with with Laurie coaching us, and so the the quick progression from a school kid athlete into into that um, I think might have been a fair bit more difficult if I hadn't sort of been brainwashed <laughs> into the way of thinking um, that James was coaching at the time at school and, and others were talking particularly around the Melbourne scene of rowing so yeah under twenty threes I think it was nineteen ninety four Australian eight nineteen ninety five worst result ever for an Australian eight ever eleventh place at a world championship so yeah I've had the highs and lows of all the sport but um, to get there and sit in that boat, uh, I remember vividly 
oh, this is like nine months, ten months before the Olympic Games when I got the nod from the selectors to say I could join the crew. And we'd done our trials in Australia, in Sydney, and I'd become the number one ranked bowsider. Um, and Andrew Cooper had retired, and they were looking for a replacement on the bow side and in the bow seat. And I remember sitting in the boat the first time on this 5K time trial and um, sort of thinking to myself, like, couldn't believe it. Like, I knew James well enough from school, but, you know, he's still not a peer. He's, he's your former coach. And, and, and I'd gotten to know Nick Green and Mike Mackay. And I think Mike Mackay was sitting in the stroke seat and turned around and said, right, when we go off the start, young fella, um, it'll be pretty intense. Just hang on. And uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting in the bow seat going, okay, just, just hang on. And 5K time trial, but the way they took off in the first 1,000 metres of that was like a proper... 1,000 meter sprint and uh, and I remember getting to the 1,000 meter mark thinking to myself how the heck am I going to hang on here and they lengthened out and they started making calls like breathe and relax and all that sort of stuff but the margin and the speed that we created in that initial phase was incredible and I remember just thinking to myself well not only am I pinching myself for being here um, but it's going to be the most intense and hardest ever experience I've ever had in my life so, so what I loved about the four was when they said go it was on and I think what the technical sort of prowess that they sort of exhibited to a lot of people around them when they rode masked the fact that they were highly competitive, um, big egos, and, and, and so willing to back themselves. So as a young kid, at 21 years of age by the time I got to Atlanta, to be exposed to that early part of my career was amazing. So, yeah, really fortunate at the time, and, uh, and it really fast-tracked me for the rest of my career in that regard. And uh, obviously you were very young and you got thrown in a, a boat that was already Olympic, you know, they had already won an Olympic gold medal. Can you chat to us a bit about the mindset or how you how you managed to balance, you know, keeping everything together as you as you build towards Olympics? Because obviously, as a young as a young school kid, you have a lot to learn. Yeah, and I think the interesting part for me, probably um, at the time, you're not you're not thinking about it too much. I mean, you're thinking about everything. Yeah, I'm sure you appreciate that. But at the time, you're not sort of thinking. It's not a design. It's not in, in your head. It's not like you've planned out a month or six months or whatever it is to make all this happen. But I did have a an underlying feeling, which was I was desperate to make this boat. Um, so as a young kid, one of the things I think you know, I've always encouraged young athletes is if you have that real drive and, and motivation, don't don't hesitate. Like don't don't sit back and wait for it to happen. Um, don't listen to anyone who says that you've got to take another year to do it or another five years to do it or you've got to do it this way. So I had an unusual amount of energy and uh, probably passion to give it a go and, and I was bold enough and I suppose stupid enough to think that if I trained hard enough and backed myself in and you know, um, certainly felt inferior to those guys, I mean, that's the reality is you feel overwhelmed when in the boat. But what I wasn't going to do was I wasn't going to hesitate and so my mindset was pretty pretty fixed on the idea that the year before I had a horrible experience with the Australian 8 um, when we got that result and so... That next year, I was just I was obsessed with the idea that if I was going to get a chance to go at the Olympic Games, um, probably as a very young athlete, you know, in, in many respects, and if I was going to get a chance to ever win a gold medal, here and now was was all that mattered. So, I so I, I invested everything emotionally, mentally into that, and physically gave it all I had. But I wasn't a big athlete or a strong athlete, so for me, I knew that I had some challenges. Um, but I knew the one thing that 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 probably was in my corner was the fact that I had a fair bit of determination and probably a fair bit of courage just to give it a go. I think I'd seen some athletes who were um, a year or two older than me who I'd trained within some squads and, and I could sense in them when I was training with them there was already a made-up mind about what they could and couldn't do. Um, and so maybe I had the benefit or the privilege of being just that little bit younger and a little bit not more naive 
Um, and so that fresh approach, I think, was also um, also good for the four. So to have a young kid coming in at that right time meant that I caused a bit of a stir inside the, the squad and inside the crew, um, but not in a negative way, but I just, I was like a little, I was like a bee in a bottle, you know, I was buzzing around and making lots of mistakes and um, I think the guys were great at forgiving all that and, and I wouldn't say I ever had, had it in balance. So the thing for me is I had them around me who knew what to do, able to sort of guide and contain that at times, but also able to let it run as well, if that makes sense. And, mm. um, you know, a typical young athlete, you're full of enthusiasm, think you can do anything. And to be in a group at the time that sort of said, right, you know, we're in this together. Um, you know, we win together, we lose together. You know, um, if you feel pressure, you, we all feel pressure together. Um, and if we have that celebration, we all celebrate together. So, um, you know, it started out very obsessive in my mind um, for that sort of two or three years, and particularly that last year. And the other part too, I wasn't scared to try things technically. Um, I think that's the one thing in rowing that uh, I'd seen a number of my peers in rowing get held back by was that they were taught to row a certain way and taught to think a certain way as rowers um, where I'd started late. So I just don't think I'd developed some of those habits of this is the only way you can row and the four was rowing differently to most. And, and so I like that, but I also like the fact that they were exploring how to row the boat faster and different. You know, so that, that appealed to me a lot as well. Yeah, I really like the, the way you, you explain how like you had that bad result the year before and it just that, that gives you so much more like purpose and like not waiting for, for anything to happen in the future. You're going to make it happen right now. But you had a lot of ups and downs in your career. So, I mean, you're coming off Olympic champion in 96. Then you, you're carrying on and, and you're having a good time and then disaster in 2000, home, home Olympics and you, you can't race. How was that just out of, uh, did that just really knock you back? I thought this interview was going to be a positive and joyous interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll get there. No, you, we got to get through the, the deep stuff before we get to the, the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, you can appreciate this. I think oh, I had success, didn't didn't fully understand or comprehend how massive a deal winning Olympic gold was. I mean, it was a dream, so that wasn't questionable, but you sort of don't fully get it um, at the time when you're younger. And... Um, and you know you, you do enjoy yourself often on the water and you know, you're making the most of life the thing that happened to me was just not appreciating how fickle um, the body is and so when i got injured to have um to have everything quickly pulled out from underneath me and and it took me a while to get my head around the fact that i'd made choices when i was training the gym and made choices when i was doing the recovery process that um probably really set me back i mean i know doing the gym work we're always taught to train harder and push ourselves and all that sort of stuff but there is a fine line and um, I'd sort of ignored body on this particular day and when my disc and my back ruptured, I know I, I know the two squats I did beforehand where I felt things in my body and then kept going. And uh, and so that balance between learning how to train to push yourself versus learning how to listen to your body is really key. Having that happen um, is probably a fair bit of regret at the time. Um, I've learned to put it in perspective you know, years after that and years later um, but missing the Sydney Olympics, I mean, it was one of those things, like that's when I left school, I mean, imagine this, you leave school in 1902, you know the Sydney Olympics gets announced, you know it's going to be happening you know, eight years later, that seems like a ridiculous amount of time, and in your sporting career, you start to then go, actually, I could be operating at this sort of level, Olympic Games level, and it's a home Olympics, how special will that be, you know, um, so to have that taken, and that's the way I thought of it at the time, I thought I'd, it had been taken away from me, so I sort of blamed and got frustrated with everyone around me my, my wife tells some very good stories about what it was sort of like where um 
it took me a while to sort of realise that I'd made choices that had cost me, you know, my injury and cost me my, my time at the game. So um, the best part was I saw my really good friend Matthew Long um, was a reserve for the team, row with James Tompkins, and those two guys did something incredible and really humbling to see a guy swap sides. I mean, he'd done a bit of side swapping when he was at school, but broke side, rode bow side in Sydney with James Tompkins. They come from fourth place to third place in that final where the French crew took off. And being a good mate of mine, all the feelings I was feeling about the negative stuff um, quickly went away, and, uh, and and I wouldn't say went away completely, but quickly went away to realising it was pretty amazing to see what those two guys did on that day. So I suppose that was something in my mind. I thought, well, if I ever get my body right again, I'd definitely like to get back to that level. Um, but yeah, pretty tough times when you're going through that. Yeah, I think uh, you can also you can also appreciate as, as a younger athlete, especially when you get thrown in the deep end, you definitely have to have this kind of relentless attitude towards training that can kind of boil, you know, boil over. But um, moving on, Drew, so you get to 2002 and you're back in the boat. Um, you, you were in the pair that year, and can you speak to us a bit about why um, it was the pair and not maybe the four? Um, yeah, I, to, to make sense of that, you've got to sort of look at 99 and... Um, we tried to get the four up before 2000, and in 99, we sort of got to the realisation which we were having trouble in Australia, one knocking off the best Australian four. Um, we didn't have a full complement of a boat, so we had three guys with Mike Mackay, James, and myself. And so eventually, when James and I had a go at the pair in 99, we had an awesome experience. It was just amazing, um, St. Catharines, Canada. So when the disaster of 2000 happened, um, and I got injured and had surgery and stuff, one of the comments James said to me, months and months later after the surgery was, uh, and, and emotionally said, you know, if you ever got yourself right, would you would you be willing to go again? So so I think it was late 2001, um, we very much made the mental and, uh, and personal commitment to each other that we we're going to have another crack at the games. And the pair was the boat for us and we wanted to go and do what we'd been doing in 99 and not make the same mistakes of 2000. So 2002 was interesting. James had been in the US for... Um, a year travelling around and did some coaching over there with Mike Tady and and all the guys there and um, and I'd been back in Australia coaching my school crews and just getting fit again and we were emailing each other all the time and challenging each other about the things we were doing on the ergos and we we're getting out in skulls and so by the time we got to 2002 um, we rolled in overseas and we we're a bit underdone but we we're pretty um, pretty bold in our assessment that you know whoever we came up against it didn't matter who it was going to be we we're just going to you know give it a real crack and try to row with real freedom. And um, and just so love that that first season back, but you know, we had a great Lucerne you know, regatta and a disastrous in Seville, and uh, and it was against um, Matt Pinson and James Cracknell. And um, one of the interesting things was that we we knocked them off in Lucerne comfortably, and they knocked us off in Seville comfortably and set the world record. And I think that was amazing because it really then you know, gave us some real juice and fuel to say right. Yeah, we've now got a clear two-year plan to get through 2002 and 2003 and four, um, and see if we can have success in the Athens Games. So, um, so the pair was a little bit by necessity, but also a little bit by we felt inspired when we rode both together with James and I. Yeah, I think uh, that 2002 that race is is a really that's an amazing race uh, pairs race to go to to watch. But um, and then again another another tough result and giving you a lot of purpose and 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 forcing you to make a a big plan for for the next two years into into the, the the Athens Games, and then talk us through through that that race with James Tompkins. I mean, because he's a, a legend in in sweep, and now you you're in this pair with him, and I mean, you guys were really cooking at that time. I mean, you you were by far the favourites going into to 2004. 
Yeah, and I think the your favourites because yeah, people see that for you. Um, in in our minds, it was there was just a way we wanted to row the boat. You know, and so it wasn't even about the idea of um, uh, who we're up against by that stage. And 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 to explain that is in two thousand and three when um, Matt and James, uh, you know, for the UK were rowing the pair and. They'd had that world record, so we went to Milan, and we didn't race anyone. We didn't come overseas, and so what we decided was, we were confident in the way we wanted to row the boat. We were confident in the way we wanted to train. We thought we could get up to one massive peak in the year, and so we went to Milan. No one had raced us. We hadn't raced anyone else, um, but we'd been very, very smart about the way we trained and um, and how we planned things out in our training. And so Milan was 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 a sublime sort of thing where we turned the tables completely, and that then meant that. Brits went to the fore, um, and we did the same thing. We said, right, our recipe is don't give anyone a look at us at all for the year. We'll only come over for the games. And so we were training away in Melbourne and Victoria and uh, down here, and uh, and then we went up to Queensland for the warmer weather in the winter and you know did some blocks of training up there. And we had all our speed indicators. We had everything sorted. We were doing a lot of bike training. Um, we had very clear routines in the gym. Um, we were both married with kids by that stage, so we were managing all that sort of lifestyle stuff. And uh, so rolling into Athens was, was quite amazing. And, and I know you say favourites, but the interesting part for us was we didn't really give a lot of thought to the competitors um, because we weren't racing them you know, at World Cups and all that sort of stuff. And so we knew everyone would be ready to go. Um, we had high expectations of the Croatians, South Africans. We knew nothing about the New Zealanders, and they had an awesome regatta. Um, but we had in our minds like this level of racing that we were going to be coming into, which we actually probably had the level even higher than anyone else was going to get to um, in terms of what they were hoping for themselves. So so we just trained to that level on a daily basis and kept talking about it as being you know, six-minute, ten rowing races and all that sort of stuff, and this hadn't been done. And so we got the chance to rock up there and have you know, three races which were just extraordinary, but our, our semi-final race was the one that was really unbelievable. Like, we actually finished that going... It almost felt like we couldn't blow a candle out, you know, and uh, and so I think that's when you know you you having that those peak moments, those peak experiences, and and the, and the boat with James to probably put it into context. I've never rode with someone who does it so easily, you know. Like he's working hard, so it's not a question. But his movement pattern, his efficiency, and his technique, um, his leverage that he's got, his feel, his rhythm, and all that sort of stuff, and just his unusual sense of confidence which is uh which is just it's discerning when you first row with him because you think he's being egotistical when he says oh we'll just do this and we'll just do that but what i found um and particularly in athens was it was so simple like we we didn't we didn't talk about anything the morning of the race we actually didn't talk our coach didn't even give us um a, a talk at all our coach simply walked up to us and said you know what to do and james and i looked at each other and just grinned at each other and smiled and you know got in the boat and paddled to the start and the warm-up routine was really simple and and I just remember thinking to myself like how good is it that I get to row with a guy like this who everyone recognizes as being one of the best rowers in the world ever um, and I get to spend day in day out with him on the water um, learning why is he so efficient and why is he so easy but um, he's just like a big kid you know and so his enthusiasm for rowing a boat well and his enthusiasm for quality and being around good people was was infectious so uh, great person to row with and learn from. Yeah, and I think um, Drew, that touches a bit about. I mean, it's it's uh, it's well known that you've been a. I mean, especially when we when we when we watch that um, if the boat can go faster video, you're a bit advocate about the feel of the boat and the technical side of things. And I think as heavyweights, you you spoke a bit about it in the video. It's very easy to get stuck up on your on your power and too much about gripping in the boat and rowing certain ways. And I think. 
you know, just chat to us a bit about, you know, the boat fuel and how important it is to get the right kind of rhythm and, and the right mindset when it comes to making the boat really work for you and getting the, the run going well. I think, I think what you, you're referring to, and, and it was interesting, I'd, it was an audio recording I made. So this is, I left the training session one day straight because I'd been told or questioned some things by some coaches down the riverbank and, and I sort of went on this little tirade and rant and, um, and probably to, to, to make sense of it all is I'd been taught very early days in rowing, you know, the idea of spin your hands and rock over and get everything set and everything out of the way and then it took me years to sort of understand why that was being done. It was, it was basically out of a sense of um, uh, uh, poor trust and thinking that heavyweight rowers couldn't row any other way, that the best way a heavyweight rower had to row was in a way that was almost robotic and getting themselves in a position where they couldn't stuff it up. Um, and I'd watch these light rowers, and James talked about it, Mike McKay talked about it. We had some Australian rowers, and then we'd watch the Danish rowers and you know, the Italian rowers and all this sort of stuff, and we watched them with such flair, um, sitting on 40 strokes a minute and rowing in a way that was really elastic and rowing in a way that looked like the boat was just doing so much more for them. And you sort of sit in a boat different times, and you're sort of rowing it yourself, and you're going, okay, so what is it to get this thing really going faster and faster? Now, what I came to realise, and a guy said it to me one day, and we'll yeah, and this guy wasn't a rower, he was a sports psych, and we were talking about something, he goes, oh, it sounds like what you're describing is when you have a, a child on a swing. And I said, uh, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, when you get the child swinging, or the child swinging themselves, when they're at the top of the swing closest to you, they can't be at the other end, so there's no point trying to force that. Um, and likewise, when they're at the other end of the swing and their feet are up in the air and they're a long way from you, they can't be back at where you are and you can't force that. And I went, yeah. And he goes, well, everything you've talked about in rowing is you just can't force it. You know, you can only swing so fast. You can only put so much effort into it. And and ultimately, when you're doing that, you've got to give it time to breathe. You've got to give it time to run. And and he'd listened to it enough over the years that uh, that to have it sort of mirrored back and reflected back was really powerful. So you get out in the water, you know, that afternoon. You're paddling along and you think to yourself, well, yeah, it's just like a swing. Like so, you finish and you sit there and you let the whole thing just do its thing and your hands start to move gradually and then as you start to sort of slide forward you go now it's gaining momentum again so as it's gaining momentum then you swing at the bottom of the pendulum a little quicker and as you get the other end you slow and you lope and drop it in and so you've got this swinging action yeah and, and and so for me quite amazingly when coaches or people talked about forcing the back turn or even forcing the front turn or forcing the rhythm in any way you sort of go yeah you can but then straight away you're doing something that's actually quite a negative impact on the boat and so um, to have the experience of rowing with the original awesome force and where I think they just intuitively got this. I mean, people would say, why do they stop at the back? But if you sat in the boat with them, they're not trying to stop at the back. What they were talking about was finish and press, hold on, hold on. And as they did that, the boat just ran further and further. They were still rowing 100-degree arcs. Um, they were still sitting on 20 strokes a minute. And so that's the interesting part too is when you put so much effort and intensity into the boat and then you let the boat work for you, you get amazing boat speeds and you have a rhythm that actually looks like you've got a lot of time um, versus the old sort of stuff of force the rhythm, force it to sort of look fast and hard and aggressive. The New Zealanders did a really fascinating exercise one year and, and Hamish and Eric uh, mentioned it to me and they'd asked me a lot of questions about how we rode and how we trained uh, back in the early days of the, getting into the pair out of the four and they came back and they said they did a, um, a checking exercise and they'd do a quarter slide check and sit on, I don't know, whatever strokes a minute. You know, 10 or 6 so they know that they pause at quarter slide move off you know, and they're watching the boat speed and they said right do that row it well row it well row it well now we'll do finish checks and then row off from there you know? and they were using the same stroke rate so the same amount of time for the pause 
and they were travelling five seconds quicker doing the finish check than what they were doing the quarter slide check. Now, the interesting part about this was that then was a light bulb moment to them to go, geez, this whole keeping the body still, let the boat work for you. And it's not really about what the hands do so much as just let the boat run. Like, you've done that swing to that end. You've got to wait for it to turn itself back around so you can use that momentum back onto your toes. Um, so for me, it started out as a, you know, watching lightweight rowing and really being inspired by how dynamic and athletic and elastic and good they were at getting a lot of boat speed out of their fours. And then it sort of was linked into the, what the awesome foursome were doing. And then we started exploring it further. And then, you know, amazing to sort of see what the Kiwis did with their pairs. And, you know, and so for me, it's, um, it's been that journey of, you know, how do you get the boat to just go, just to go faster? You know, like the same amount of effort, can you go 10 seconds quicker over a 2K course? And I think what a lot of people think is that you can't. You know, if you're going 6.20, that's it. The natural fact, if you ride a different way, you might go 6.15. You know? um, so, you know, so that was the lessons, and it was, uh, it was a, bit of a, uh, a bit of a moment of just um, yeah, spewing that sort of thought out, but um, it's gained a little bit of popularity. I <laughs> yeah, I think uh, most rowers have uh, listened to it. Anyone that listens to it is definitely uh, keen to, to row that way. I think it makes a lot of sense. But now talking about your, your technique, so I think like, so you finished in 2004, second-time Olympic champion, and then moving on, uh, James Tompkins retires and Duncan Free comes into the pair. And I think that those next few years are where you guys really start to row, I think, exceptionally well. I think those, those uh, building up to 2008, some of my favorite races to go and watch of you guys in the pair because it's just going so well. Was that, I mean, did you know that that pair had a lot of speed before? Or did you have to work quite a lot when you got in the, in the new combination? How do I put in perspective with Duncan Free? So... Yeah, if I talk glowingly about James Tompkins, um, Duncan Free, uh, a very different kind of athlete, similar sort of physical stature, being 200 centimetres tall, 100 kilograms. But um, for our first row was at a nationals in uh, 2005, six, I think it was, just early six. And um, the reason why James uh, couldn't couldn't be there was because he had uh, birth of his child. And so Dunks and I went and had a paddle at the national championships, and it was diabolical. Um, we came fourth at the championships. But there was something in it, and I think your, your reference about, you know, did you know straight away, we didn't know from the speed or the feeling of the boat there, but I think the sense we both got with ourselves was that um, he was coming from sculling, had a really good sculling career, but there was still a lot of stuff that was unresolved for him as an athlete, and uh, and for me, it was a good time for a change, and he was pretty raw, but had everything you need um, from a physicality, technicality, and, and mental space um, as, a, as an athlete. So that first year in 2006 was um, was really cool just to sort of help him learn how to sweep row. And, and everyone sort of says sculling's the hardest thing to do, but it's quite amazing when a scull has sculled for many years, there's a, there's a lot of differences to actually making a sweep boat go fast compared to the scull boat. And, um, and so to sit in the pair behind him, and you know, we did a lot of mixing things around in, in pairs. We even did a lot of double scull rowing as well. Um, and we actually trained separately. So he was living on the Gold Coast. I was in Melbourne. So we do camps, and it started out as three-day camps, five-day camps. And what was quite amazing was from a training philosophy standpoint was it meant that we knew we had a window of time to make it count. And so when we got in the pair, we really pushed the boundaries of how far we could improve it technically in, say, a five-day period or when it became a week period or a two-week period. So every single session mattered. And so that, that rejuvenated focus on quality was fantastic. Um, the amazing thing that I always felt straight away, the difference between um, the pair with Duncan and the pair with James was 
James and I had the capacity to travel at a high speed over a long, long period of time. There was no question. Um, and there was an efficiency in the movement, and it had a really sweet feel about it. There was a slight difference on the boat initially, um, but when you said, let's do five strokes flat out, the boat speed that we could get down to was just extraordinary. And so to give you an example, I remember doing, um, we used to do these 15-stroke efforts um, as a way of just testing our speed. And uh, Dunks would have the speed coach in front of him. And, and so obviously the big fellow, the first couple of times you do it, you see low 20s or you know, 20, 125, then a 123 is the max speed, and then a 120. And then all of a sudden we start seeing these teens, and uh, at one stage we're seeing these 16s, and you know, 116, 115, all that sort of stuff. And I remember sort of thinking to myself, going, hold on, where did James and I get to? You know, now we never got, I don't think, if we ever got sub 120, it was, it was rare. Um, but we could travel at that 134 pace for quite a long time where Dunks and I initially had to build up our aerobic capacity better. Um, but that pair in 2007, after having a good, you know, sort of, uh, a good state of training in Italy, uh, was quite amazing. And, and the fact is we kept exploring the movement around um, what we thought was going to make the boat go faster. And to have his added physicality um, and his added size and his enthusiasm for not having all the history of rowing sweep, and he was also frustrated. He was a person that was really pissed off about 2004 Olympic Games. So... So he was motivated from having a disastrous result. Um, he was open-minded to learning how to row this boat anyway because he didn't have all the history in the build-up. Um, and so for me, it was an invigorating thing to be a part of. And I remember you know, the Munich World Championships where the Canadians, um, oh sorry, the New Zealanders matched us to halfway and were doing George Bridgewater and Nathan Twaddle were doing an amazing job. But you could sort of tell they're on about 40 plus strokes a minute. And uh, and I don't ever see the numbers when I'm sitting in the boat, but you know you get a good feel for it over the times. And I could sort of feel that we we're on 35, 37 sort of stroke rates there. And 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 you can just tell these guys are beating away and going hard. And all of a sudden, I just turned to Dunks and said, "Right, mate, legs." Yeah, and just that squeeze of legs. And Dunks had these amazingly fast legs. And all of a sudden, you just felt the boat just like kicking another gear. And next thing you know, you're by the finish line, seven seconds ahead of the field. And um, and he looked around with his big. You know, broad grin, uh, and I think he sort of had you know, a real pleasure doing that. So um, I think that pair, for my mind, um, was the fastest I ever went in a pair uh, with Duncan, and uh, and so you know it was a real pleasure. And and the fact that we did it in so many different ways, um, you know, remote training, um, the philosophy about you know some of the things we we're doing in some of the skill sessions and drills and all that sort of stuff was just uh, it was a real joy for three years. Really good project. Yeah, I mean, you you jumped the gun there, but we we were gonna we were gonna get into the two thousand and seven race because uh, Lawrence and I are are both uh, love that race a lot because I think when we when we look at you know really good row, rowing races and you know specifically how to row a race really well that two thousand and seven race and also the two thousand and eight race um, if you watch you guys row it's a really you know you guys are really really smooth throughout the whole race and especially when uh, Bridgewater and Twaddle go go up on you guys. You can see that you're just still, you know, keeping the movements right, keeping all the technical aspects right, and you're just cruising at like six bits lower than them. So I think you know, for us, if you want to, when you want to look at how to row a race well, those are big big races to go watch. Yeah, I think the thing you say about the technical stuff there, you're exactly right. I think the, I, I sort of divorced myself a little bit of being in those boats when you sort of think back over your time and. I've watched the footage of um, 2007 and eight a couple of times with, with my school crews. And you get asked the questions like, how do you keep yourself almost metronomic? How do you keep yourself just right in the groove of what you do? And 
And so the thing I describe is you, you, you can't panic. It's almost like a staring contest with um, the physical fatigue um, and the pain, and, and then it's a staring contest with your competitor. Um, and if you've got, like we had those couple of years, we had competitors that were, they were so courageous in having a crack at knocking us off, um, and they knew that we were rowing well, and they knew that we were operating at a very high level. So what you loved was between the New Zealanders and the Canadians and all that sort of stuff, they'd go, right, we'll roll the dice. You know, we're going to take it to you for as long as we possibly can without hesitating. So when you're rowing against that, you know, all the time, I remember sitting there feeling like you were on a knife's edge, but then saying to yourself, like, you can't show it. You can't show that um, you could make a mistake any moment. You certainly can't show that you can break from your technical framework. And so, you know, if, if it's good to row the, the boat a certain way in training, it's good to row the boat the same way in racing. And, and then if you've had training success where you've been able to hold really good speeds um, for, for the effort, you know, for heart rate and all these sort of indicators you might have. So Dunks and I would just sit there and say, right, we're learning how to drill this. So it's almost like anyone can throw anything at us. And you know what, if it's half a length up, half a length down, canvas here, canvas there. So, but you create so much pressure that all of a sudden you're sitting there saying to yourself, just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And as soon as you start to sense there's a break, it's just the ability just to slide, you know. So you don't want to have massive changes, as you say. You certainly don't want to throw yourself around in the boat. Um, and the, the thing that I noticed with Dunks too, being that he was 100 kilograms, was that if you did these things that were big and brash, you know, you'd have these other consequences, you know, 10, 15 strokes later. So the whole thing was you knew your template for your, your, your technical model, your movement pattern. You knew how much effort you were putting in and how much effort you could sustain. And it was almost like, how do you hold yourself right at that 100% mark? Because you can't do 110, you know, but doing 95 is going to leave you too much in the tank. And then how technically do you hold that together with just so much tension and, 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 uh, and motivation? Um, so, yeah, so those races, races are awesome to be a part of. But, yeah, as I say, like I've done it with kids where you try to, you try to help them see that, you know what, Never panic. You know, always just stick to your plan, unless you really get down the back end of the track and you know, something's gone horribly yeah. wrong. But um, great competitors do that for you as well. <laughs> but it's also, I think, watching that race. I mean, especially I can imagine as a school kid, there's such contrast between you, you, your pair, and the Kiwi pair. There, I mean, they, as you say, they're over forty. I think they're forty-one, forty-two through the one k mark there, and I think that's where you can really see the contrast in that just calm, cool customers in your crew. And then them really trying to give you guys a rev and almost rattle your cage. They're exactly right. And, then, and their, their instruction and their plan was, can they put so much pressure on us that we change? Yeah, and, and, and our thing was, can we keep so much pressure on that we don't have to change almost? You know, so then, and so, yeah, and, and yeah, you guys know, well, your physical capacity, yeah, if you try that with too hard a time, tighten up. You know, and equally, if you get scared of that and you sort of back off too soon, you, you might hold some good speed, good momentum that you then don't get the benefit of. So, um, yeah, it's good, good lessons in, in how to keep a boat just right on the edge. Cool. So that's a wrap for part one of Drugin. Hey, guys. Once again, please share the show. It really helps us to grow the row show and just make it your mission to get one more person listening to the show each week. It's going to make a huge difference to our growth and making the show better for you. Yeah, and uh, keep, a, keep an eye out and an ear open for part two of uh, Drugin. It's going to be legendary. If you want to get hold of us on Instagram or email us at theroshowessay at gmail.com if you have any questions or queries about the show. Nice, dude.
Oh, fuck, dude, that ra- raped me. <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we lost it. You start here, yeah, then. I think we. I think we'll have enough. No, I'll, I'll go. Let me go. Let me try once. I'll get this thing. I'll just stay. I'll just stay thing. Yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense if you just read it. Okay. Do you know what this thing? This thing means and. And yes, I know, bro. 